the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Four, Susan's Bridge. Chapter Four, Tough Task. You doing okay? Byron looked over the half-naked raccoon carcass hanging between him and Susan. Um, sure, Susan replied even though she felt far from okay. Despite the cool wind, she felt quite hot, and her insides churned. She unzipped her coat and swallowed frequently, in an effort to keep down her flatbread. "'Well, you're breathing kind of fast and shallow,' Byron said. "'I know this takes a little getting used to. Times being what they are, however, this is good stuff to know.' "'I know, I know, I know.' Susan tried to slow down her breathing, but with little success. I just never had to, uh, know quite this much, uh, before. Help some folks to picture other things rather than what it really is. Like you could think of this as trying to pull a tight doggy sweater off of some pudgy, hairless chihuahua. Byron's suggestion didn't help much. Susan always thought chihuahuas looked a little creepy. She swallowed hard again, then nodded that she was ready to proceed, even though she wasn't sure she would ever really be ready. The two of them pulled the inside-out pelt down to the raccoon's neck. The pink carcass, partially covered with patches of yellow-white fat, stopped resembling an animal. That provided some relief. It was now simply an oddly-shaped pink thing, uh, with a peculiar smell. Okay, this next part might get a little weird for a first-timer. Get weird? This is already weird. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Next, you're going to keep pulling the pelt down over the head while I trim to keep things going. Don't get freaked out if he starts to look like a naked zombie dog. A what? Oh, oh, sorry. Just a personal joke, but bad imagery, I guess. Just try not to think about it at all. Your job is to keep steady downward pressure. Ready? No. Well, we're going anyway. Pull. Susan pulled the pelt down while Byron sliced gently at stubborn spots. When she saw the black glassy eye and then the bare teeth, she had to look away. The image of the lifeless staring eye, however, was burned into her mind. She felt like the porch was starting to spin. She kept pulling downward but decided to stare at Byron's wristwatch. She tried to picture the gears inside it. The porch seemed to spin less. She pulled the pelt free. All right, good job. Byron held up the inside-out pelt, which looked like a fur-trimmed sack made of bacon fat. He hung the pelt on a rafter nail. Now, gotta get this guy cleaned out so you can take him down to Emily. Me? Well, sure. I have to get this hide on the stretcher board and scrape before it starts drying. Eh, don't worry, this next part goes faster. He slipped the loops off the carcass's ankles and laid it on a rag that he had spread out on the porch floorboards. You hold around the back legs to keep him steady. He's a slippery little pig. You've been a real trooper through all this, especially for a first-timer. It'll be okay if you want to look away while I cut off the head and pause. Susan swallowed hard and squared up her shoulders. No, I've come this far. She still felt a little light-headed, so she held onto the porch rail with one hand. What do I do? Byron chuckled. Is this because Charon called you princess back there? Never mind. Let's just finish this. What do I do? 
Well, you just hold him steady. I'll do the cutting. Susan knelt before the carcass, looking at Byron's watch to avoid another glimpse of the zombie dog head. She could see more than she wanted to in her peripheral vision. Somehow, the taking off of the head didn't bother her as much as she imagined it would. It was like erasing the zombie dog with all its bare teeth and dead eyes. It was a small improvement. Even so, she avoided looking at the neck. She knew that would be bad. Well, next we gotta get him cleaned out. It's really pretty easy. You lay him on his back, take a pinch of the belly flesh down here, like this, Poke your knife in just a little ways. Don't want to cut too deep or you cut the guts inside. Uh, that contained the meat. Then run it up to the rib cage like this. The guts and intestines spilled out like a tipped-over bucket of noodles. Fat, gray, pink, and red noodles. Oh, God, Susan whispered to herself. Now she knew what animal guts looked like. It was what she imagined chest congestion looked like while still inside you. Byron reached his hand inside the raccoon's chest cavity. You have to feel your way up past all the guts, curl your fingers down, then pull. The lungs usually try to stick to the sides. He pulled out a handful of glop and plopped it into a small red bucket. To her relief, the carcass didn't seem like an animal any longer. It looked more like a joke shop product, some sort of four-legged rubber chicken. She studied the carcass as she carried it down to the lodge for Emily to cook. Once gutted and trimmed, there wasn't much to a raccoon. She peered into the hollow chest cavity. So these things are mostly a furry bag of guts? Not much to them beyond that. Emily took the carcass to a wash tub to scrub it down. There's some warm water over on the stove and soap on the shelf. She pointed with her elbow. You'll want to scrub all that oily stuff off before you go check out your bunk. It seemed to take forever to get the oily film off of her skin. That smell, it's so, so distinctive, Emily offered cheerily. Susan sighed. That's not the word I was thinking of. It does come off, right? A faint flicker of a smile crossed Emily's lips. Eventually, possums can be worse. Oh, great. It can be worse, Susan muttered. Ah, here you are, Justine emerged from the tunnel. Miss Emily, please tell your husband that we got the larger engine to work in with satisfaction. We should be able to connect the larger generator tomorrow. Oh, that is good news, said Emily. He'll be happy to hear that. Justine turned to Susan with a broad smile. So now, Miss Susan... If you are done washing up, how about I show you where you sleep, yes? Susan sniffed at her hands. They still smelled faintly of raccoon. She picked up her backpack with two fingers, lest the straps become scented, and followed Justine through a small tunnel at the other end of the lodge room. With the little LED lantern held in front of her, she felt like Diogenes, though in a coal mine instead of the streets of Athens. Mind the steps, said Justine. The passageway's wooden walls ended at a portal of large rounded stones, the fieldstone foundation of the girls' cabin above them. Justine hooked her lantern onto a bent wire hanging from the floor joist above. She motioned toward another bent wire for Susan's lantern. The combined light amounted to that of a full moon, but was just enough to navigate by. 
The air was cooler, moist, and smelt of damp earth. This is my bunk. Justine pointed to three wooden pallets along one wall. A mat lay rolled up at one end. Blankets sat folded at the other end. Kayla sleeps there. She gestured toward a wooden door laid across several cinder blocks. You can have this straw pile, or make something with the spare boards. It is up to you. The pile of straw had a wool blanket tossed over it. The pile looked like an easy bed, but who knew what might be in that straw? Susan chose to make a bed out of boards. They say you did not find the trail today, Justine said cautiously. No, but I'm just sure that road is there. I rode my bike on it as a kid. It has to be there. We're going back out tomorrow. I didn't come all this way just to fail. Susan wrapped the wool blanket around several boards to create a hard mattress. She set the assembly atop several cut sections of four-by-four four posts. It was noble of you to come all this way to help with the project. It will mean so much to so many people. Justine rolled her mat out across the pallets. You are brave, too, to leave your home and family at a time like this. Well, actually, my parents are in Ohio. At least, they were. I came here from Cheshire. It's become a sort of new home for me. Lots of great people there. Susan pulled out some of her personal things and set them on an impromptu nightstand of two-by-four scraps. A jar of olives? Justine tilted her head. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. I don't really like olives. It's kind of an odd memento, but I like it. Martin bought it for me when we were walking home from Boston. That was quite an adventure, but we made it okay. I like to look at my little jar when things get crazy. It reminds me to hang in there and not freak out. Things will be okay. Ah, oh, this Martin, he is your boyfriend? Um, well, no. Uh, he's married. Justine looked up startled. Oh, ah, I mean, uh, oh. She looked away. No, 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 Susan quickly inserted. It's nothing like that. Martin isn't like that. We didn't, I, I, he never. She turned to sit on her makeshift bed. It's complicated. I did not mean to pry, Justine apologized. That's okay. You couldn't know. Heck, I'm not sure I even know. Justine tipped her head and blinked her eyes. She seemed open and friendly. Susan didn't realize until then that she longed to talk to someone about her muddled feelings, but she had no one, certainly not in Cheshire, to talk with. It's just that, well, you know how most guys have only one thing on their minds? Hmm, Justine nodded wearily. Well, Martin isn't like that. He was kind and looked out for me and worried about me. He cared for me like no one ever had before. He even wanted to beat up my ex-boyfriend for being a jerk. But he never once tried to, you know. But you say he is married. An unhappy marriage, I am to assume. Oh, it's not that. At least I don't think so. Margaret's nice, if a bit businesslike. He is faithful to her. Oh, so you felt that you had to leave there, Justine said with a slow nod. Well, yes, but also no. Like I said, it's complicated. I do want to go back to Cheshire when this longbow thing is all done. But you said he is faithful to his wife. Well, why would you go back? 
Susan slumped, head in hands. I don't know. Part of me knows it's foolish, but the other part of me... She stared at the mismatched carpet scraps laid over the dirt floor. She had churned through her tangle of thoughts for so long it was hard to untangle any of it for discussion. All of her previous relationships had been disasters. Any romance that she had felt back then turned out to be one-sided. The guys all turned out to be players or jerks. Martin really was different. He showed that he truly cared for her in little ways, and he never tried anything physical, even when he had an opportunity. He couldn't. He was determined to be faithful to Margaret. Susan envied Margaret for that. And then there was that Joni woman who confused the excitement of rescue and relief for love for Martin. Susan was certain that she was not confused like Joni. She wanted to be certain, at any rate. Was she only fooling herself? Are you okay? Justine asked. You stop talking in mid-sentence. Susan sat up with a deep sigh. Uh, sorry, I got lost in thoughts. It's complicated. Uh, where was I? The other part of you? Oh, yeah. Part of me wants to go back, even if nothing else comes of it. Being cared about on the edges is better than not being cared about at all. She looked at the floor. I know, it doesn't make any sense. I can agree with you there, Justine said softly. It does not. Susan resumed pulling her change of clothes out of the backpack and hung them on a spike wedged between two foundation stones. But right now, I need to find that road so those trucks can bring the food that everyone needs. Indeed, said Justine, and I must get that old bridge ready for your trucks. What a crazy coincidence, you being here at camp, Susan said. She was eager to change the topic. Coincidence? asked Justine. I mean... What are the odds of having a structural engineer living right next to a bridge that needs repaired? Oh, I did not live here before all of this. Justine leaned back on her pallets. They brought me here because they needed an engineer. They? Well, to be honest, I do not really know who they are, said Justine. Mr. Davis and that Charon man talk of them. I was only told as much as they felt I needed to know, I suppose. These days it is not prudent to be too curious. They said food was coming from the coalition states to relieve hunger in New Hampshire. They said that we, who are living in hiding, would get some of the food too if the plan succeeded. They said that they needed to use an old bridge that needed repairs. They knew that I was an engineer. Living in hiding? Where were you before they brought you to camp? Or before this... I was living in the basements south of here, with a small group. They lived in hiding from the authorities. It is against the law to live outside of the cantons, as you know. I escaped from Canton Springfield. I was running from the guards. The hiders found me and took me in. Escaped? Susan sat attentively at the edge of her board bed, ready for details. Justine shook her head disapprovingly. It was a crazy thing that I did. If I had thought about it properly, I should not have done it. They might have shot me. The food is poor in the work camps, and rooms are crowded, but it is better than being shot. If they caught me, I would have been sent to a restoration camp. Justine shuddered. But you got away. You said they had guards? 
Ah, perhaps that does need a bit of explaining. She peered into the dark tunnel that led back to the lodge. They have not called us for supper yet, so it would seem we have time for a tale or two. Justine took a deep breath, as a parent might, before starting a bedtime story with Once Upon a Time. Well, when the power went out, I was at work, a little firm in Springfield. We did consult and work for architects. My speciality was roof trusses, you see. Well, despite the outage, I made my way to my home in Westfield. Life was austere without the power, but manageable. However, the authorities ordered everyone to evacuate their homes. They took us in buses to Springfield. They said that it was for our own safety and to distribute FEMA aid. Canton Springfield, they called it. I was housed with six others in a one-bedroom apartment. Other apartments in the building were more crowded. There was no running water, so everyone had to use one of the two chemical toilets in the parking lot. It was a bit grim, and the fights sometimes disturbed our sleep, but we had food, uh, such as it was. I was afraid that would happen to me in Boston, Susan said. That was part of why I decided to take Martin up on his offer of a room at his house. He was walking home. Uh, but how did you get way up here? Springfield is quite a way south of here. Most of the way north was on a bus. After a month or so in a Canton Springfield, I was told I would be moved north to a work camp. They were not asking. They were telling. The infrastructure committee wanted to get the small hydroelectric station in Greenfield to work again. My Canton registration paperwork identified me as an engineer. The committee wanted the station to supply electric power to Canton Springfield. It seems the gates to the turbines were computer-controlled and out of action. I was told to make them workable manually. Oh, did you? I do not know, Justine shrugged. I had fashioned a pulley system and counterweights, but it had not been tested. On the day of the testing, one of the workers fell into the canal. Everyone, even the guards, rushed to help, or at least to watch. It was a foolish impulse on my part, a mad impulse, but I saw an opportunity. I backed away. No one saw. I slipped around a corner and ran for all I was worth. I ran through the streets, then between houses. I had no idea where I was going, only that it was away from the river and as fast as I could before they discovered I was missing. Martin and I were running from some bad men on our way up from Boston. I know how scared you must have felt, Susan added with a slow, knowing nod. It was foolish of me to bolt like that, Justine shook her head. I had no idea where to run. I had no food, no water, no tools, nothing but my coat and gloves. The first night was very cold. I eventually found an open abandoned house with bed and blankets. Still, it was very cold. The next day... I was searching another abandoned house for food and water when they found me. Susan gasped. The guards? No, thanks be to God. The men who found me were for some families in hiding. I may have frightened them as much as they did me. They were kind to take me in and share what they had. I was with them, hiding in their basements, for a couple of months. Nice people, uh, but they suffer for lack of supplies. And yet they shared with you? They knew Hal would help them. 
Actually, it was Mr. Davis who does the helping, though none of our group knew that. He helps groups like theirs with food now and then and medical supplies. He does not like others to know that he has stored away much food and supplies before the power went out. So he uses single contacts. The only person any of our group knew was Hal. We thought he was one of those peculiar preparedness fellows. Huh, doom people, Susan smiled at her earlier notion. It was through Hal that the Longbow folks learned that I was an engineer. They needed a structural engineer to oversee repairs of their bridge. So they asked me to come up to the camp. They said that if the plan succeeded, many people would get some extra food. How could I say no? Hmm, Susan mused. We were both brought out here because we had something they needed for this project. Indeed, though I am not certain I can get that old bridge repaired sufficient for your trucks to cross. Oh, modern trucks, they are so heavy. And I'm not certain I can find the road for the trucks to use, added Susan. We have both come a long way for this. We must both succeed. Justine's broad smile had a relaxed abandon to it. It was not until then that Susan realized how little people smiled like that since the crisis began. If they did smile, it was brief or shallow or out of irony. There was little to smile about. Hey, you two, called a woman's voice from the tunnel. Time for supper. The silhouette wobbled down the tunnel back toward the lodge. In the lodge, two more picnic tables had been pulled alongside the central one to make one long table. Many people were already seated on the benches. Susan recognized some of them but many were new. Okay, everyone, said Byron. Before we get started, I'd like to introduce you to Susan Price. She's the scout who's going to find the road through the hills tomorrow. Susan cringed at the introduction. Couldn't he have used some softer words like try to find or will do her best to find instead? It sounded like she had guaranteed to find the road. But that's not all, Byron continued. The meaty feast we share tonight is brought to you by the mighty hunter Hal. Take a bow, Hal. Oh, come on, don't, don't be all modest. You shot him with an arrow, no small feat. Yeah, that's better. Thank you, Hal. Soft applause rippled through the room. And a special thanks to Susan here, who helped me clean out the little grease ball this afternoon. Take a bow, Susan. Susan was paralyzed for a moment. Her help had been marginal at best, and hardly worthy of praise. Why was Byron doing this? Nonetheless, the many faces looked up at her with appreciative expressions. Perhaps everyone else dreaded the task as much as she did. Perhaps they were quietly grateful that it was her and not them. Another round of soft applause rose and fell. She forced a brief grin and a shy little wave. And as a reward for helping, Byron said to Susan, I've given you the sirloin cut. It's not very big on a raccoon, but it's really tender and quite tasty. Uh, thanks? Susan sat at her place setting. On her little plate was a little pile of rice, a larger pile of sauerkraut, and a dark little cone of meat. In the bluish-white LED light, it looked almost black. She was not sure she wanted to eat raccoon meat, especially after seeing the whole skinning and gutting process up close. Let's begin, Byron said. Susan picked up her fork, 
but noticed that everyone else bowed their heads. She quietly replaced her fork and bowed her head, too. Dear Lord, we thank you for how you continue to provide, even in these troubled times. You promise to provide for our needs, and you have. For that, we praise you. Thank you for your gift of salvation, our safety today, and the gift of this raccoon. Amen. A sudden clanking of forks on plates was startling. It sounded like someone had dropped a box of silverware. A dozen conversations resumed with a roar. Susan was hungry. She scooped into her pile of rice. Warm food felt so luxurious. She chewed slowly with her eyes closed, savoring. When the rice was gone, Susan's fork hesitated over the sauerkraut. She had always avoided it in the past, expecting it to taste bad because of the name. Margaret served it a couple of times back at Cheshire, but Susan had successfully avoided it, feigning fullness. She felt far from full at the moment. Emily makes her own, said the young woman sitting next to her. She was a young woman, thin and pale, straight brown hair pulled back in a ponytail. Her mannerisms had a veneer of casual geniality that did not quite cover up for her nervous energy. She pointed her fork at Susan's untouched pile of sauerkraut. She shoveled a big forkful of her own sauerkraut into her mouth, but continued speaking. And says it's got vitamin C and stuff. She grew cabbage in the garden, up by the chapel. She says we need it for our vitamins so we don't get sick. With a sigh, Susan scooped a small forkful of sauerkraut. It was the lesser of two evils, given the raccoon meat still on her plate. She closed her eyes and chewed. To her surprise, the kraut was mostly salty, with a little tartness. The saltiness was satisfying. She devoured the rest of it while it was still warm. Finally, there remained only her portion of raccoon meat to go. She was trying to decide if she was that hungry. Maybe rice and sauerkraut were enough. Ah, oh, saving the best for last, eh? said the young woman. <laughs> Susan stalled. I'm Kayla, by the way. Roommates, I hear. Kayla offered her non-fork hand to be shaken. I was out on patrols and tending some injuries and flu, so I missed when you arrived. Injuries? Are, are you the camp doctor? <laughs> ah, that sounds a bit fancy. I was an elementary school nurse before all of this. It's not much for medical credentials, but I'm the best they've got for now. I've got some books. I've been reading a lot, trying to learn more. Oh, so much to learn. Oh, but here I've been blathering on and on, and you just want to enjoy your treat. Uh, sorry, uh, go ahead. Kayla pulled back and stared, eyes darting between the meat to Susan's face and back to the meat. Susan slumped. She had to eat it now. Earlier, she had entertained the notion that she might drop it or surreptitiously slip it onto someone else's plate. Not with Kayla watching her intently. Susan sighed, stabbed the little chunk onto her fork, and took a small bite. To her surprise, it wasn't terrible. She wasn't certain what she thought the raccoon might taste like, but in truth, it didn't have all that much flavor. As Byron said, it was quite tender. Good, huh? Kayla beamed. We haven't had raccoon in a long time. We get some mystery meat now and then, winter and all. Still, raccoon is one of my favorites. I think it tastes like lamb. Lamb, said a round-faced man across the table from them. More like moose. 
he said with his mouth full. I haven't had moose, said Kayla, so I wouldn't know. But I have had lamb, and that's what it reminds me of. What do you think? she asked Susan. Susan took another bite. Actually, the meat was mild, and almost like beef, with a little something else. I haven't had moose before either, Susan said. But this is pretty good. Ha! said Kayla. See, she thinks it tastes like lamb, too. She didn't say that, protested Moose Man. Well, it does, countered Kayla. Does not. Hey, you two, scolded Byron. No arguing over the Lord's blessings. It's not polite. He buffered his scolding with a wink. Yes, yes boss, boss, Kayla and Moose Man said at the same time. Moose Man silently mouthed the word moose at her. Kayla scrunched up her face and mouthed the word lamb back at him. Susan was surprised to see that she had finished her raccoon sirloin before she realized it. We're really looking forward to when the food trucks come, said Kayla. I've got nothing against whatever food the Lord blesses us with, she cast a quick eye toward Byron. He was engaged in other conversations. But I'm really hoping they have some chocolate on those trucks. She closed her eyes and tipped her head back in imagined ecstasy. Chocolate. And ketchup, added Moose Man with a point of his fork. Tons of stuff is edible if you get enough ketchup. We ran out a month ago. So as you can see, Ms. Price, we're really counting on you and Justine to get those food trucks out of this side of the river. Susan held a self-conscious grin. She didn't need more pressure, but she was getting it anyway. Tomorrow would have to be different. Ah, a savory raccoon sirloin. Perhaps not what you'd consider fine dining at the moment, but hard times have a way of pushing us out of our comfort zones. Our modern processed food industry has allowed us to get rather picky. One could, I suppose, insist on eating nothing but Vienna sausages and saltine crackers. I wouldn't recommend it, but you could. That could work for you as long as the Hormel plant continues canning and Nabisco is still baking. But what if they stopped? Hard times, hunger, kind of forces you to be less fussy. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying these weekly tales of survival, consider supporting my work at buymeacoffee.com slash McRowland, all one word. You can do a one-time donation by buying me a coffee. Or you could become a monthly supporting member. If you prefer Patreon, you could become a patron there too. That's Patreon slash Mick underscore Roland. I do appreciate your support.